119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. And it continues in John 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. The word of the Lord. We're studying the beautiful little book called 1 John. Uh, in this book, as we have seen, John tells us uh, in the final chapter, chapter 5, verse 13, that he has written this in order that those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus might know that we have eternal life. This is the book for assurance. And he gives us three tests in order that we might regularly take the equivalent of what if we were taking a physical test would be our blood pressure, pulse, and respiration, our vital signs. He's giving us spiritual vital signs. And as we've seen, the first concerns our behavior. Uh, is what we profess to believe actually impacting our behavior? Because salvation is not simply an event in the past. It is a new life in Christ. And then we saw last time that it affects not only uh, a new way of living, but it's also a new way of loving. It affects our relationships. And so he calls us to this deep life of sacrificial love, loving the way that Christ has loved us. And now we come to the third marker, the third vital sign. And this is the doctrinal one. It is a new way of thinking. So we have a new way of living, a new way of loving, and a whole new way of thinking. For the Christian, the central truth is a truth about Jesus. All morning now we've been singing these beautiful songs that proclaim one biblical truth after another about who he is and what he's done for us. And John tells us 
that the very center of our thinking should begin to be shaped by the doctrine of the Christ of Jesus. We're going to look at that. Let me just say real quickly before I read this text, um, I am so looking forward to two weeks from, I'm, I'm leaving early in the morning tomorrow to go reintroduce myself to my family and see if uh, they remember who I am. And uh, Drew is going to be preaching next Sunday, Labor Day weekend, and then remember that the next Sunday, on September 11th, we'll be joining in one service. And I am so looking forward to seeing this place packed with people singing God's praises and being able to delight in worship with you. But this morning, I'm really grateful we're in two services because I just didn't feel in the first service that I said what was most on my heart and mind about this text. So this is one of those times when a preacher is really grateful to get another crack at it. Uh, people sometimes say, when do you finish your sermons? And when I'm truthful, I say, on the way home after church. I should have said, I shouldn't have said. So this morning I get a second crack. Look with me, would you, at 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. Children, this is the last hour. As you now have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. For they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And so, Father, may we do that even as I try to speak your word truly and your people seek to hear it truly. Would you speak to our hearts and minds through Christ our King? Amen. I'll tell you where I'm hoping to go. Um, really four moves that John makes in this text. And the first is in the first verse that we read, where he talks about understanding the times, knowing what time it is. And then he immediately speaks in the next two verses about the context in which we must live our lives in order to understand the times. And that's the context of the Christian community, the church. We need to be part of a local church and to be all in or we're not going to discern the times rightly. And then he turns to the heart of 
this third test, and he talks to us about Jesus, who Jesus is, and how to discern true teaching from false. And then he, in the fourth move, to me, surprisingly but beautifully, seems to reflect what he did in the second move, which was to tell us we couldn't discern the times unless we're living in fellowship with God's people. Now he, in effect, tells us that we won't understand this doctrine of Christ if we are not living in fellowship with, and I would have expected him again to say, in fellowship with God's people. And of course, that's true. But what he emphasizes at the end is that we need to be in fellowship with the triune God. We need to be abiding in him so that his truth might abide in us. So that's where I'm hoping to go in my uh, trying to lead you through this this morning, hopefully pacing myself a little better than I did in the first service. Sometimes you get all wrapped up in the first thing you want to say and look up and realize time's up. And I had three more things I'd hope to say. So first of all, discerning the times, knowing what time it is. It's remarkable, isn't what he, what he says here? He says, children, it's the last hour. Now, he wrote that 2,000 years ago. I mean, was he just wrong? Or what did he mean by it? If, if that's still true, and if it applies to us, and if understanding the times in which we live now involve understanding this, then we need, we need to make a crack at it. I think there are two contexts, of course, the great one of being within the church, but two biblical contexts that we need to keep in mind. One is the final verses that we looked at last week. Remember that these verse divisions and chapter divisions are a medieval imposition on the text to help us find our way around. They're not in the original text. He wrote one document, expected them to read it and talk about it. And so he ended what we looked at last week by saying, do not love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And then what did he say? And the world passes away. So he's telling us that we are living, first of all, in a world that is passing away. And that if we make our investment here, it is going to end up crashing. A lot of us uh, that are in retirement or close to retirement now uh, go through that horrible exercise these days of checking the stock market to see how it's doing. How, how am I doing? And uh, it's not been doing great lately. But he's talking to us about investing in a place where neither moth nor rust consume nor thieves break in and steal, to use Jesus' words. He's calling us to see this present age for what it is, passing away. The second context is all of the teaching in the New Testament about this. People will sometimes say to me, do you think we're in the last days? And I always say, that's easy. Yes, because the last days started when Jesus rose from the dead and the new age began when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church at Pentecost. 
So from a biblical point of view, eternity has already begun to break in on us. And that's why Jesus would say to his disciples, this is eternal life, that you know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Eternity has broken in and it is an overlapping of eras, one era that is passing away, another era that will never pass away. And he's calling us to recognize in that sense, this thing that seems so vast and so powerful is in its last hour. Now, if you say, well, that's still a strange way to talk. That's exactly what scientists are doing when they talk about the doomsday clock. You all have seen it, it's been up for years. And every now and then, someone pulls it out again and says, I don't know, who, who runs the doomsday clock? For Pete's sake, who are these horrible people? But, you know, they, they've readjusted it. It's, it's even closer to midnight. It's now just two minutes to midnight. Now, that doesn't mean that these scientists think that when they go to bed at night, they're not gonna wake up because the cosmos is gonna disappear. They're simply acknowledging the fact that we now live in an age when we have the capacity to utterly destroy ourselves. And so they want us to live as those who know that in one sense, we may be living in our last hour if we don't get a grip on things. Now, the Bible has been saying that for a long time, except we know that it's not in our hands at all, but it's in the hands of the sovereign God. And here's, and again, I don't want to lose all my time on this point, but here's where it gets a little dicey. And our missionaries could tell you this much better than I because they are Americans who've gone into a profoundly different culture. Japan is just, there are so many layers more than I, as an occasional traveler and friend of some Japanese could even begin to know. But there are layers of seeking to understand and read uh, this new culture. And we, seeking to witness to our friends and to be part of it, and churches wanting to be missional, want to understand the culture in which we live so that we can speak into that culture. But what he's warning us is to remember at all times that we are citizens of a different kingdom. We are coming to it as part, as representatives of another culture, God's culture, and that this thing when we invest our energy, our time, our resources, our hopes, our dreams here, all of that is going to pass away. And I can tell you this, I've known since I was a child that everybody eventually dies, but when you begin to lose family members, brothers, sisters, a spouse, dear friends, when you find that you're looking at the local newspaper obituary for the first time in your life, to check and make sure that you haven't just lost another friend. You now don't just know you're gonna die, you believe it. And he wants us all, youngest to old, to realize that we are in a world that is passing. This is the world's last hour. Now, this is his second point. He doesn't make it explicitly, but I think it sets the context. There are these teachers, these false teachers, and we won't go into that again. I talked a little about it first time, but they were basically, it seemed to be Gnostics who had a different view of Jesus, but they had been in the community. And now they've left because people haven't received their teaching and taken it, but they've apparently taken some people with them and they've gone out. 
when he says, they've gone out from us for they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Please don't apply that to people who've left EP and gone to other churches or whatever. He's not talking about Christians who've just gone to another congregation. He's not even, I think, talking at all about people of other religions. Not doesn't want us to, to see a Buddhist or a Muslim or a Hindu and say, hmm, is this the Antichrist? They nod that she, he's talking about people who've been within the family, within the community, and now are using those relationships to try to teach what is not true about Christ. Give you a few examples, and you may think this isn't right, but these are people who write and put it out there, so let's, uh, let me give you a few examples. Within the Presbyterian community, when I was a philosophy student, uh, one of the leading Presbyterian philosophers uh, who wrote most often on God and all the arguments for and against the existence of God was a man named John Hick, ordained Presbyterian pastor. And John Hick came out with a book some years ago entitled The Myth of God Incarnate, in which he sought to use all of his theological and philosophical training as an ordained Presbyterian pastor to convince anybody who read his books that what we get here about Jesus was is sheer myth. That's exactly what he's talking about. Or again, if, if uh, I have so many friends that were great hold fast uh, Episcopal evangelicals who finally just said we can't anymore and they became new Anglican movement people. Why? Because for 10 years, Bishop John Shelby Spong was the director of theology for the Episcopal Church. And he spent that 10 years teaching against everything that the martyrs died to defend. That's what he's talking about. You want to know who's the Antichrist? Do you think? I, used to, I remember one book I read where they were suggesting it was poor Henry Kissinger. I mean, good grief. It's, he's talking about people who have professed to be the real thing and now are denying the truth of God. Bart Ehrman, if you get the great book series or you, or you like to read things on the New Testament, Bart Ehrman is probably the primo popular writer on New Testament right now, Misunderstanding Jesus and other books. What's Bart's history? Bart was raised in a fundamentalist family. He went to Moody for Pete's sake. Then he got a little sophisticated and went to Wheaton. Then he got a little more sophisticated, went to Princeton. Then he got so sophisticated that he decided none of this is true, but rather than saying, therefore, I'm gonna do something else with my great intellectual gifts. He now is one of the most popular teachers on the New Testament who seeks in everything that he does to convince people that the New Testament is not reliable. Beautiful moment. I saw him once on Stephen Colbert's show. You all, you know who Stephen Colbert is? Younger people do. Older people who know, shame on you, you shouldn't be watching Stephen No, um, Stephen Colbert, who's such a, a, an acerbic social commentator and humorist, is actually a very serious Roman Catholic Christian who teaches middle school, Sunday school class, which he proudly told Bill Mayer when Mayer was making fun of, of the of Christians. He said, I teach middle school Sunday school. He had Bart Ehrman on his show and kind of led him along and you know, was saying, so uh, you don't think that 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, why? Oh, no, no, he never said that. Was uh, you don't think that he really said before Abraham I was. He kind of went through all Jesus I am texts. And then he said, so let me get this straight. You, coming 2,000 years later, know more of what Jesus had to say than the people who actually knew him. That's where we are in our culture, including the Western church culture. And the Western church is declining while the church in the rest of the world is exploding precisely because of antichrists. And that's not to say something cruel. It's simply saying these are people who from within are trying to convince people that the biblical doctrine of Jesus just isn't true. Okay. The prescription for understanding the times is being within the family of faith and saying, we're going to hold each other accountable. You've been in, we've been walking together, and now you confess to us guys that you're thinking of leaving your wife and, go, you know, don't you know what time it is, brother? Why would you do that when we're in the last hour? Why would you make this terrible choice over here or over there in business or in life? Why would you deny the things that are lasting and true? Don't you know what time it is? You're not going to get that unless you are walking in fellowship with other Christians. We have to be connected within the fellowship. Just coming to church isn't enough. Every one of us at every age and stage needs to be connected to other Christians deeply and accountably and to walk on this journey. Now, I remember as a very young pastor preaching that passionately and after service, by God's grace, three or four of the men walked up to me and said, so who are your gods? It was like, well, you know, my job is to tell you what to do. Yours is to do it. You know, don't, don't, this is no time for recrimination. And I realized that except for some pastors that I've still now, 40 years later, am still walking with, in my own community right there, I had no one. I wasn't doing what I told them. And so I had to intentionally gather around me a group of guys that I started meeting with and being willing to open my heart to them to let them see my dirty laundry so that they could hold me accountable. That's what you've got to do. Every one of us has to. And we need to call each other on it, as those brothers did me. Okay. The third move gets us right to the heart of it. And that's the doctrine itself. And it basically has two parts. It's that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, God come in the flesh. He fulfills all that, uh, that the scriptures have described the Messiah doing, but also that he's the son. He who denies the son is the Antichrist. If you don't have the son, you don't have the father. So it's both the the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. Both of those things were being attacked. Maybe by the same people, maybe by two different groups. We don't know. But those were being attacked. And what John is saying is that anyone who says that Jesus has not come in the flesh, uh, that he's not God come in the flesh, is anti-Christo. Now, we know that one of the teachings back then uh, among the Gnostics was that 
Jesus was a, just a normal man, but at his baptism, the spirit came upon him, which he did in the form of a dove. And that, that constituted him as God's son until before the crucifixion when the spirit departed. So that he was God's son just during that picture, for that time from his baptism on. That may have been one of the things that they're addressing. But the key is that the doctrine of the full humanity and full humanity and full divinity of Jesus is crucial. Jesus was not 50% human and 50% divine. He was 100% human, totally man, 100% divine, fully God. And you say, well, wait a minute, how can that be? 100% plus 100% is 100% because that's all you got, baby. And by the way, as a little aside, that's the solution to the whole big question of how can God make us free and how can God be sovereign? How much, how free am I and how sovereign is God? You are free, God is sovereign, and within God's sovereignty, 100% and 100% is all there is. It's your life, it's mine, okay? Now, where am I going to be in a context to begin to plumb the mysteries so that I can abide in him? Which is the whole call here we sang. <laughs> so, Beautifully, that final song was a call to abide, abide, remain in him, abide in him, live in him. If in my time with you, there's only one message beyond the one, love one another, it's this. The heart of salvation is this one thing and everything else flows from it. The heart of our salvation is union with Christ. That is not one element in our salvation, as the books sometimes show. Sometimes you get a book on the plan of salvation or a theological work, and they'll have, you know, uh, predestination, call, regeneration, repentance and faith, uh, believing unto justification, adoption, all these other things, and one of the chapters will be union with Christ. That's massively misleading because Union with Christ is what our salvation is. And all those other things flow from that one thing. They are elements of our being made in Christ, new creatures. And so, as I quoted last week, I may quote it every week because I need this reminder every day to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, See the union? Not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Where is Jesus Christ? If you're a Christian, by his Holy Spirit, he's living in you. He is in you and he has united you to his body, the church. And so we abide in him as we abide in fellowship with one another as his spirit draws us together to be a visible manifestation in this place of who he is and so to live together in a way that gives the surrounding community reason to believe that the gospel is true. This is what he's calling us to. He says, as you are in fellowship, not only with one another to discern the times, but if you are walking in fellowship with the triune God, fathom that. That's why it, it's such a small, little, pathetic thing to think that our salvation is simply for forgiveness of sins. Praise God, it's forgiveness of sins. We gotta have that. But 
He hasn't just left us as forgiven messes. He's united us to himself. He's put his spirit in us. He has put us in him. He's caught us up in some mystery of grace into the divine dance. That's Remember Jesus' high priestly prayer, the end of John 17. It's Jesus' last moment there with his disciples before he's arrested and taken and crucified. And he prays for those with him in the upper room. And then he ends the prayer by saying, Father, I'm not only praying for these with me, I'm praying for all of those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, as he went to the cross, he was praying for you and me. And his prayer was that they may be one as you and I, Father, are one. As you are in me and I am in you, so may they be in me and I in them. And may they so be united together that the world will have reason to believe that the gospel is true. He said, that's how the world will know that you sent me when they see how these Christians love each other, how devoted they are to one another. And that's what happened in Acts, isn't it? People in Jerusalem looked and said, see how these Christians love one another. There's not a needy one among them. So I'm done. How do, how do we stay there? Two ways, he tells us at the end. He says, let the word abide in you. So you got to be in the word daily. It's the word abiding in you and me that gives, enlarges the conversation. It enlarges God's capacity within us. The more scripture we know, the more God can speak to us. And it's his spirit. The anointing, when he says the anointing, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. That anointing that enables us to understand. Okay, I, can you stand one more story and then I promise. Um, I just thought of this. When I was in the service, um, I hope I didn't already tell you this. Um, I'm an old man. If I repeat my stories, just smile and look at them. Um, when I was in the service, and was in Southeast Asia on liberty, going places where I had no right to go. I'd be having a great time with my friends and all of a sudden unbidden would explode in my mind. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. And I'd think, not now, mother. I know mom and dad were back home on their knees praying for their son, detonating those gospel bombs they'd <laughs> spent 18 years planting in my heart. Now, you and I who want to walk in truth need to be planting those ourselves so that the Spirit has that huge vocabulary just to detonate in our lives. Father, your word is true. We trust you. May we abide in you. May your truth abide in us so that we may know that we have eternal life even now through Jesus Christ, our great redeemer and our king. Amen.